You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. I want to share a message with you this morning as I was um, here. I have three pages of notes I printed out, and I was ready to go that direction. And in worship, my heart started really turning in a different direction. And um, I pray that this encourages you and challenges you. Let me say this. Um, It's important as Christians that we take messages often that are theological and conceptual and that we intentionally break them down to a place where they come into the very fabric of our lives. What I mean by that is this. It's easy to get lost in the plethora of words of a message to the point where it doesn't connect into our lives. I'll say amen to myself. All right, amen. Uh, It's easy to hear a message and maybe not let that translate. However, I warn you today because I need you to do a little bit of work with me. Um, What I need you to do is to take this message which is in my heart and apply it into your life. I'd love to give you three points in a poem. I can't do that today, okay? I need you to take this message and say, how am I going to live this out? Um, I'll say it like this. They faced a problem very similar in the New Testament when uh, Paul the Apostle, writing to the church of Corinth, uh, an early church, he said this, you have many teachers and not a lot of fathers. What what does he mean by that? You've got 10,000 teachers and not many fathers. The difference, or the reason he says that, is because teachers instruct, but fathers impart. Now, what that means is this. Uh, When you look to your natural father or mother, um, they did more for you, um, hopefully, than give you or pass on a chili recipe, right? I saw somebody on Facebook, maybe you're here, I can't remember, I'm inundated with information, but I remember seeing somebody recently, like, today's the day that I get the recipe from my dad, like, this is the day, and I'm excited, hopefully it tastes good, you know, you pass on to your kids, uh, sooner or later someone's like, it doesn't taste good, we just got to end the family tradition, but, uh, right, but, but a father does more than just pass on a recipe, and if he does that, that's great, but what's interesting is that I can't remember necessarily moments in life uh, where my father, you know, took me by the hand when I was a little kid and said, son, you see that tree there? You know, he didn't do that. Now, maybe you have those moments. You can kind of look back and be like, when I was little, he walked me across the street, pointed out this. But what happens is by being with that person, by being with somebody, you begin to, um, they rub off on you. Does that make sense? They kind of, you begin to feel, wow, that's what happens. So growing up, one of the things that I picked up a value from my parents was that uh, I noticed the way that my dad handled uh, conflict or the way that my dad handled things. So what I've tried to do, although not perfect, is that when something goes really wrong, rather than getting angry and throw things and attack people and write letters and send emails and put up Facebook statuses, I know you guys do that, right? Rather than doing that, because everything in me wants to do that, and probably everything in you wants to do that, somebody in your life said what? That's not wise. That's not how we do life. That, that, that's not the way we do things. You know, we don't just shoot off an email. We don't write a letter. We don't call up and, you know, curse somebody out. Well, this is how we do things. Because that's what we get. We don't just get conceptual, theoretical things, but we actually get values. Now, I want to say all of that primarily as a challenge and then also as a caution because today I can't really preach a value-based message. I'd love to do that. But I have something stirring in my heart for the city of Scranton and then also for each of our lives. If you turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus writes in verse 16, actually he doesn't write, he says this. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. Verse 17. 
We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now what's happening here is Jesus is talking to uh, the people of Israel who did not understand John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. A little bit of context. Thousands of years before this passage, there's these prophetic promises in the Old Testament we see over and over and over going all the way back to the book of Genesis where God tells us, I'm going to send a Messiah and make all things new. And we know in the book of Malachi, he says that before I send the Messiah, what I'm going to do is what? I'm going to send somebody to prepare the way. So Jesus shows up and says, John the Baptist was the one to prepare the way for me. But the people don't understand. And Jesus is trying to wrestle with an analogy to say, how can I depict how ignorant you are spiritually of what's taking place. And what he says is this, you're like children in a marketplace. Now, uh, he's not talking about like your children at Wegmans. Like kids love to go to Wegmans, right? You get to play with the little things. You know, like you go to McDonald's, you go to the ball pit or something. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a marketplace as a place of transactions of power. The, the, the better thing to say here in our context would be, you're like children at Wall Street, You have no clue what's taking place. Your kid's running all over the place while there's major transactions going right above your head. And we're sitting there going like, I don't really understand. Jesus then goes on to give another picture. And he says, what is the picture? We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Have you ever been out of step? Have you ever done something um, really embarrassing at the wrong time, the wrong place? Um, there's a handful of people, and somebody just brought this up to me, so it's still kind of resonating in my heart. You may have heard this story. Bear with me. I've only lived one life. Um, when I was younger, I, uh, I wanted to, they, they had a, a girls, they called a lock-in, which I think is probably completely unsafe by security reasons, but they would lock the doors, right? And then everyone would kind of hang out together. So the girls of the church spent a night together, big slumber party. I, don't, I couldn't imagine what went on in that place. But uh, I wanted to go in. I wanted to, I wanted to make a grand appearance. I was about 15, maybe 16 years old. Actually, I was about 19. No, I was, I was 15. Um, and I, I wanted to go in there. And I was thinking, how can I, you know, what is my grand entrance? I'm a 15-year-old boy. I want to, you know, I want to do something that just really leaves a lasting memory. Well, I did. The way that happened, though, is that uh, I began to go to every door, and every door was locked until I finally found one door. And the one door that was open, I peeked in, and I saw all of the girls staring up. And I remember turning to my friend, who he had a clown mask, and I think I had a Darth Vader mask on that I pulled over my head because we didn't want to be seen. And I remember looking up, and I turned to him, and I said, this is great. And he's like, what? I said, they're watching a movie. And I was like, this is the perfect time. We're gonna, here's our plan. We're going to run through screaming. This is like the perfect timing you could ever have. So I turn to him, and he's like, you ready? So I pull the mask down. I open up the door, and I book through there screaming at the top of my lungs. I'm feeling like just the adrenaline pumping. I mean, this is like, you know, like just this is it. And I realize I hear as I'm running, and it's not that far of a run, but I'm the only scream taking place. So I'm realizing my friend bailed on me midway before I even started. And as I pull around the corner, I'm, I'm bouncing around, and I realize, uh-oh, this, this, something's not right here because nobody reacted and nobody chased, which is something that you would expect in, like, a mask, boy, lots of girls, fun. You know, okay, I did. I'm running, no chasing, no noise. I come around the corner, and there's my dad's secretary, and she says, Jared, that wasn't smart. And I'm like, what? She said they were having an altar call. Oh, what? 
um, they were just having, they just were doing a little sermon and they were asking the girls to come up for prayer when you ran through in the Darth Vader mask screaming. It was a long drive home. I felt really out of place. Now, the only reason I can say that is this. Uh, that's probably one of many super embarrassing things that I've done in my life where I completely was out of step, completely out of place. And Jesus is trying to say, as a generation in the first century, and I want to show you how this applies today, that this generation was so missing what was taking place right before their eyes. Um, now, I don't know about you. Some people here may be, be, um, may be advanced in, uh, in finances, where when you watch the, start, the stock market tickers, I'm not just talking about because you can pronounce the word NASDAQ. I'm saying that you literally, you understand. When that goes up, that means pull out. That means we got to do this, this mutual fund, this, this, that, and the other. You get it. Now, everybody else looks at it and goes, mm, I can't really figure out what's happening. All I know is when the stock market's up, it's a good thing. When it's down, it's bad, right? Jesus is saying, you're like a kid right now in Wall Street. There's transactions taking place that are shifting and moving major things that affect you and your future, and you have no clue. Jesus says that. And what's interesting is that he goes on later, we begin to see Jesus is trying to say to everyone, this is who I am, I am the fulfillment of these promises. Turn over just a few verses, Matthew chapter 12, I want you to see this. Verse 25, Jesus casts out a demon, give you the context, people begin to say to him, oh, he cast this out by Satan. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom, you, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will not be your judges. They will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now watch this. Or... How can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, interesting here. Jesus is saying that we uh, live, whether we want to believe this or not, in a world of conflicting kingdoms. Right now, you live, I live, we live in a world of conflicting kingdoms. We live in a place where there is good and bad. Uh, there is a world that most of us live in just feels gray. But Jesus says there's conflicting kingdoms. And there's order to these kingdoms. That darkness has an order and light has an order. This is interesting, though. They begin to accuse Jesus... And saying, well, you're just coming, you're just evil like it, and you're tearing this whole thing down. You know, you made that person manifest a demon, they rolled on the ground, it's all fake, it was whatever. And Jesus says, no, if I cast out a demon by this finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this is what I'm trying to say here this morning, is that we live in a world of conflicting kingdoms, yet we do not realize it. Why? Because there's two radical errors in response to the spiritual world. One is to believe that everything is spiritual. Have you ever met anybody like that? I mean, every, literally every single thing is spiritual. You're driving down, you get a red light, and people are trying to cast out demons from the red light. 
You're like, we're all subject to paying taxes. The IRS comes, you're like, man, I'm really under heavy spiritual attack. What's going on? April 15th, it's tough. Well, we all pay taxes. That's not demonic. It's just simply laws of the land. The other error, though, the other error is that we can look at something and say we live in a world that is strictly natural. Strict, there's no other outside force. And what takes place as a result of that, we find ourselves in a very similar situation to the generation that Jesus compared in the first century. That we live as children in a marketplace, not recognizing what's going around us, all the while we're just kind of living life. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you live like that, that you are just subject to the bubble that you are trapped in. That life is just kind of like um, a game of chance. It just rolls. And one day it's a good day. One day it's a bad day. One day you're up. One day you're down. Right? You just kind of, whatever it is. This is just life. I don't really have any control in it, around it. I basically just take what it comes. And all I can do is cope with it. Now I want to say this to you. Jesus shows us something radically different than coping with the world that we live in. Jesus doesn't just say, Here is a broken world. Let me come die to be your savior and then hopefully your life will get a little bit better because someday when you die and leave this world then you'll get to float around on a cloud, play a harp, and do whatever else sounds really fun. That's not what he says. Jesus did not come. I want you to see this because Jesus did not come to take us to heaven. Jesus came to restore us to the Father. Heaven is just... Where ultimately we'll come back to earth. I shouldn't even, got to be careful the way I phrase that. The point of this is not that Jesus would show up for three and a half years and accidentally die on a cross. And so many times that's what we live as Christians. As if the goal of Christianity is just to get out of this world. That, that, the people being around people like that scare me. It's very, because it's really kind of uh, pessimistic and it's kind of a little dark actually when you look at that, because it's like, you know, just can't wait to leave this world. What do you mean? Most of the time, we medicate people that say that. Yet we endorse that from the Bible. That doesn't make sense to me. I just can't wait to get out of here. Listen, I understand that the kingdom to come is better than the world that we live in, but we're here, we're here on a mission. Jesus didn't just leave us here and go, well, someday, you know, we're going to rapture you out of here. We're going to pull you out of here. You know, any moment now, I can't wait to leave here. It's just sooner or later, this thing's going to, that's not what he did. Jesus came into direct conflict. And then what we see is not only he comes into conflict with the enemy, but he empowers his disciples to bring and endorse the message of the kingdom on the earth. What I mean is this. You are not here to cope with the world uh, that just comes into you, whatever's thrown into your lap. Um, I feel like we reason our way out of the purpose of prayer. I love those marbles over there. For a couple of reasons. One, they're just kind of pretty. No, I love them. Why? Because there's something about when I pray and I see something happen that couldn't happen with prayer, it shows me that I don't just have to cope with this world. It's not just whatever happens, happens. God has given us some sort of authority to be able to go into the world and preach the gospel. Now, and you're like, but Jared, that takes away people's free will, you know, and that that takes away God's sovereignty. No, we can't pendulum between these two extremes. Well, I don't want to witness to somebody, you know, if God's not actually like opening their heart or something like that. 
I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go too far. I don't want what in the world does that mean? When you pray, you're asking God to sovereignly intervene. When we're praying, we're asking God to overcome, to break in. There was an early 17th century group of English Baptists that were so scared to interfere with the sovereignty of God that they said, we're not going to share the gospel with anybody. That's great. <laughs> we don't want to, you know, we don't want to confuse, we don't want to save, we don't want to witness to somebody that God's not saving. So what do we, we do? We won't talk to anyone. Nice. Now we can err on that extreme. We can, also extre- we can also err on the other extreme. We can also err on the extreme that basically this world is completely up to us and that it's our responsibility 100%. Absolutely, you can err on both of those. But prayer draws right between God's sovereignty and human responsibility and says, you actually are important to this world. You are important. The prayers that you pray, God does not look at the prayers as if it's coming down a conveyor belt and goes, I like that one, don't like that one, like that one, don't like that one. Eh, that one's okay. Eh, I'm not really sure. I'll let that one pass. Yeah, I guess we'll answer that. No, God takes our prayers, the book of Hebrews says, and Jesus who lives to intercede sanctifies our prayers and says, I'll use whatever you say to change this world. The picture from Hebrews is this. Not that Jesus is on his knees constantly praying over and over and over. That would, that would be a long prayer. Have you ever tried to pray and you kind of just run out of words after a while? You know, you're like, you know what, I'm going re- to make it a dedicated, I'm going to go pray. My goal is to pray for an hour. You list people you haven't talked to in like 20 years. And you look at your watch and you just crested 12 minutes. Oh, I guess I'll pray for him again. Right? Let's try this again. You kind of begin to go through that list. I mean, you're praying for your like people. You don't. You you're, you're, you've got the world map out. You can't pronounce names, and you look at it. And you're like 32 minutes. Lord, how mercy on me! I can't pray for an hour. The picture of Hebrews is this. It's not that God, uh, I should say Jesus, who is God, is not praying when he went to the Father. He's not sitting there going, Lord, you know, just help them. They need help. Like he's not arguing with the Father. He's not doing that at all. What he's doing is sanctifying our prayers. He's taking what we offer him and he's saying, yes. I'll answer that. Father, I'll do that. See, Jesus shows us that we live in a world of conflicting kingdoms. That you and I are surrounded by people spiritually that are blinded and that are bound by darkness. They're bound. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers lest they see the glorious light of the gospel. There is a real enemy. I want to be very cautious in saying this because when we talk about things that are demonic or we talk about Satan, there may be something in you that thinks of him as a big black cloud or dark figure or a faceless being or something. That's, what I'm saying is not to instill any fear in you this morning. What I'm trying to say is this. We live in a world of conflicting kingdoms, but one of those kingdoms has already been overcome. The book of Colossians chapter 2 says this, that God has disarmed and spoiled 
powers and principalities on the cross. That means this, that if you are in Christ, as Colossians 1 says, that in you is Christ the hope of glory. Within you, living inside of you, is the answer to set free those around you that are bound by spiritual darkness. Now when I say spiritual, I'm not just talking about things that are mystical and whacked out. You know, you've got to, you know, cross your eyes to see it. What I'm saying is this, that you are surrounded by people that are beaten down and broken down by philosophies that are less than what God has created them for. And you possess the solution and the answer inside of you to see them set free. I'm going to jog for a minute. I'm going to try that one again. Let me go to another verse and then we'll come back to that again. Ephesians chapter 6 says this. That we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Well, what does that mean? When's the last time you were driving down the street and you ran into a principality? Anybody have that happen recently? You know, you're driving the car. Ah, what in the world was that? Honey, it was a principality. I mean, didn't you see him? Goodness. You know, like you call into Allstate or something. You know, what's going on? We just got Allstate. We had to switch our insurance, and they give you this little um, monitor thing that, like, it's called safe driver. I am now more of a paranoid driver than I was before because it's this, like, thing that monitors how, like, you can only break, uh, you can only descend 10 miles an hour every, or 8 miles an hour per second. So I'm, like, so stressed out. And if you don't follow it, then they raise your rates. So I used to be a safe driver. Now I'm paranoid, right? I, now I used to be defensive. Now I'm just like easing up. I'm like watching. Like I don't even watch the road anymore. I just simply watch my speedometer the entire time I drive, right? So Allstate's going to be like, we have to raise your rate. I'm like, you, you turned me into a bad driver. Thank you. When's the last time you ran into a principality driving your car, insurance claim? What happened? Well, you know, we were driving and this principality came out and just took a bite out of our tire, and it popped, I swerved, I ran off the road. It was just rough. Well, you know what, is, uh, does your insurance cover that? We don't cover principalities. Why does Paul say we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, spiritual wickedness, and high places? I want to suggest to you that it's this reason. Because we live in a world that we could easily mistake as clearly or strictly natural. And Paul says that behind flesh and blood are motivating factors that must be dealt with. Let me explain it like this. We look at something in this world of flesh and blood. I don't think Paul was saying to them, you know, you need to have eyes open to see everything. I think he's saying you need to see eyes with what's already taking place around you. That next time that you run into a situation, that you begin to beat yourself up and condemn yourself and begin to self-mortify yourself and saying that I am worthless, I am nothing, I can't do this. Maybe in that moment you need to realize that you're not wrestling with flesh and blood. You're not wrestling because you had a bad morning. You're wrestling with something you can't see. Next time you talk to somebody and their life is hopeless and broken down and they're saying, I can't handle it anymore. And listen, let's not pretend you don't run into those situations. And if you don't, it's because you don't get out of your house. If you're not talking with people in your life that really have real situations that are wearing them down and draining them, and you're like, well, that doesn't really happen. Wake up. It does. 
Next time you're in that, though, I want to say this. Maybe the challenge, maybe why Paul reminds us we don't just wrestle with flesh and blood is because next time you're in that conversation, you sit down, well, you know, things are going to get better. You know, just, we all go through ups and downs. They're like, they look at you, they're like, seriously? Well, it's going to get better. Like, it's been 12 years. Well, sooner or later, I'm having a good day. Maybe next time you run into somebody in your family, maybe your father or your mother, maybe your brother and your sister where there's incredible strife in your family, maybe next time it's not to go, well, am I, it's just, that's just the way we do things in a family. Maybe we need to recognize that there are conflicting kingdoms in this world. One that comes to seek to kill, steal, and destroy, and the other to give life and life abundantly. I want to stir your heart. Right now, you don't need the 3D glasses to see it. Right now, in this room, in this city, are conflicting kingdoms. There are conflicting philosophies, value systems, and ways of life that are being advocated that says this is what success is, this is what fortune is, this is what hope is, this is what happiness is, this is what relationships are. In this very room right now, that's taking place. It's like a marketplace. We can't read the ticker symbols because we're kids. What's that? I don't know what... That's not how you spell Apple computers. A-A-P-L. That's the ticker symbol, by the way. right? I don't understand what that... No. In this world, there are shiftings that take place. And as Christians, our call, our mandate, is not to simply sit back and go, well, there's a flute. I don't know what to do with the flute. Or there's a dirge, which was a song they would sing in times of mourning. I've got to share a story just because it's personal. And I really feel bad and I need to apologize to my wife publicly for this. We went to a funeral. And my wife had red on. And she asked how, she said, does this look okay? And I didn't think about it. And she had this really nice red dress. And we showed up and like, somehow I, put, I pulled a black coat. And Aaron was the only one with red on in the entire room. And I felt really bad. Aaron's like, Jared, she looks at me. She's like, you said this looked nice. And I was like, you never wear red to a funeral. And she's like, what? And I went, uh. I realized right there, I was like, yep, she asked me, didn't you? And I'm like, babe, you don't wear red to a funeral. And she's like, I asked you this morning, how did it look? My bad. You ever feel out of place? This morning, I'm trying to say to you, and I apologize for that again, honey. Love you, babe. Have you ever felt out of place? The crazy thing is, so many of us, though, will never feel like that. When it comes to things that are spiritual, we'll just live our lives, although we constantly bump up into things that may or may not be spiritual. Eh, probably not. When's the last time you know, maybe you're hearing this, you're like, uh-oh, this dude's loony. Hmm. Possibly. Probably. Yeah. When's the last time, though, that you, that you had a situation in your life that you looked at and you said, there's, a, there's something spiritual going on, and I don't know what it is, but I need to pray through this. When's the last time we ran into something and we go, hmm, I don't get it, but there's something here I need to pray about. 
So my concern is our theology of God leaves very little room for prayer. It's like, eh, take it or leave it. I'm going to refer to those beautiful marbles over there just for one second. Of those situations, some of those things could absolutely be natural. We don't know. You know, every time a person gets sick, it doesn't necessarily mean it's spiritual. But there's times that people get sick and it absolutely is spiritual. You know, we see Jesus at times he just heals somebody and doesn't ask the cause or anything. Just heals them. Other times we see that he casts out a spirit of infirmity. You know, you can't medicate a spirit of infirmity. That was, that was worth jotting down. Let me do that real quick. You can't medicate. Okay. There are things that we can't medicate. We can't do it. There's things in this world that it doesn't matter how much we, and I'm not saying, and please don't go out of here and hear something I don't say, but there are situations that we can't counsel you out of. The best counselor in the world can't counsel you out of. There's other situations Probably the worst counselor in the world would help you out if you would just ask him. But there's certain things in our lives that we can exhaust ourselves, like the woman with the issue of blood. She said she spent all her money on the do- uh, all money on the doctors and Jesus in a moment. Can we stand together? Worship team, if you'd come, this is what I want to do this morning as we close. I believe. We live in a world, in a city, surrounded by real situations. And for a few moments this morning, can we just pray? Maybe about the situation in your life, you know, what if we've just looked at it for so long, we thought, it just is what it is. What if we would just actually, I'm not saying we've got to pull out spiritual swords and swing around. I can do anything goofy. We're just going to say, Jesus... I'm declaring your victory to this situation, into this city. I'm declaring your victory. Jesus, I'm speaking to this situation, and I'm asking you to intervene. The reason I'm saying this is, and I don't need a response, it's just truth. The majority of Christians do not read their Bible. If we don't read our Bible... The majority of Christians, and maybe right now internally you're like, glad I read last night before I came to church. That's not the reason I said that. The majority of American Christians don't even read their Bible. I'm not saying that in a condemning way, it just is what it is. If you're condemned by it, go read your Bible. The majority of Christians don't read their Bible. If you don't read your Bible, I have a hard time believing you're praying. Let me tell you what prayer is not. Prayer is not, God, this is so frustrating in Jesus' name. Man, I have an awful day. I just wish things would get better in Jesus' name. Man, I wish things would work out. I just hope things happen in Jesus' name. Prayer is not having conversation in your head and attaching the name of Jesus. Have you ever done that? I have. I was praying one day over, actually over this building when we needed this building. And I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, you've got to open up this thing. And I start praying and I'm praying and praying. And right there I hear the Holy Spirit say, stop 
praying, I heard you. And I'm like, and I tried to start praying, but God, I need this, we need this, but stop praying, I heard you. And I'm like, hold on. Try it one more time because I'm ignorant. But God, we really need, stop praying, I heard you. And I realized in that moment, I began to just pray towards my frustration and attach the name of Jesus rather than actually communicating with God and saying, God, I trust you, I believe you, and it's done. For a few moments this morning, we're, we're gonna sing and it's gonna be good, but I want you, you've got things in your heart, situations in your life, that we need to take a few minutes this morning and we need to pray about. You have family members, you have friends, you've got brothers that are addicted, sisters that are addicted to things, to drugs. We don't need to say, well, you know, but there are spiritual forces at work, and as the church, we have an incredible power to see them set free if we pray and believe. Amen.